Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and it's Tuesday. Back to a normal week. President's Day is over, and I hope your Tuesday's treating you well. It is windy, gusty here. I guess we have a storm coming in. It was starting to feel like spring again, and now here we are going back into what's probably going to be winter for about a week or so. But again, it's not March, so I need to stop pretending it is. So anyways, I want to talk about a few different things today. Um, I want to talk mainly foreign policy today. So I want to talk about Biden's trip to Kiev. I want to talk about worries growing in Moldova, basically around maybe some Russian intervention or if Moldova's next, that type of thing. And then I also just want to touch about some new reports, at least, kind of troubling reports that maybe China's thinking about giving military aid to Russia and what that would mean, because it would not be good. I'll tell you that much. So I then also want to get into a pretty insane interview between Piers Morgan and George Santos. I watched the whole thing. It was about 50, 55 minutes, and it was pretty cringeworthy and really shows a lot about George Santos. So at the end, I'm going to go through that a little bit. So it might be a little bit longer episode today, but good episode, I hope. And uh, anyways, I want to do a small update on Moldova to start. As we know, Biden was in Kiev yesterday. Pretty bold. You know, I've, I've heard you have to fly to Poland and then take a train into Kiev, active war zone. He pissed off the Russians. I'll get into that a little bit later. But I did want to talk about this last Friday, but I, I got busy working and things changed, so I couldn't get there. But Basically, Antony Blinken, our Secretary of State, said that there are growing worries that Russia actually could intervene in Moldova, maybe stage a coup or somehow divide the society, seize power. One of the maybe pro-Russian parties comes into power and makes it a puppet state again. Moldova is kind of, you know, wedged in a very interesting place right now. And there are conflicting reports on this. But I did do an episode back in the summer on why Moldova could be next because it has these breakaway regions that are pro-Russian. So it kind of seems like a similar situation to Ukraine. And before I get into the recent events, I will just give a brief background. Um, I'll start with a portion of this UN article. It's called the UN Dispatch, which is basically kind of a news and discussion paper that reports on the EU or the UN, sorry. And uh, the article reads that In quotes, of all countries that border Ukraine, Moldova is arguably the most vulnerable to Russian aggression. Since 1992, Russian troops have been present in a breakaway region of Moldova called Transnistria. This is a majority Russian-speaking region that receives considerable support from Moscow. And I will just reiterate that this is a fairly similar-looking situation from the outside. Basically, you have a region of Moldova that identifies with Russian heritage and ethnicity and is waging a conflict that wants separation this is a lot like the Crimean, Donetsk, Donbass regions in southern and eastern Ukraine. And this is why I think that if Putin were to expand or escalate, it probably wouldn't be Finland or Poland or Estonia first. It would be Moldova. Just makes sense. Former Soviet Republic. A lot of Russian influence there. Also, apparently they supply most of the wine to to Russia. So maybe maybe Putin likes wine too. But But in all seriousness, Moldova's taken in a lot of Ukrainian uh, refugees as well. And it's kind of an important country. It's not rich. It's not super powerful. It's really not a U.S. ally, but it's an important one politically and strategically and just a place that we don't want to see invaded or have anything change there. And 
as I've mentioned earlier, you know, Putin does seem to want to have this like Slovak nationalism to form some sort of a new Soviet, I don't know, empire, Russian empire, whatever. And, you know, he's used this kind of savior complex in regards to Ukrainians um, or Russians in Ukraine. Right. And he wants to kind of get rid of the Ukrainian state. And I think this savior complex would kind of apply to Transnistria in, in Moldova as well. It would be the same rationale, different country. And anyways, getting to the recent events. Over the summer, there was kind of an escalating conflict in these breakaway regions, and the government was kind of on high alert already. But now there are political protests that highlight the issues inside of this former, uh, former Soviet country. And the BBC has an article that discusses how there are huge protests happening in the capital of Chinese of, of, of Chisinau, sorry, Chisinau, and apparently there are pro, basically there's pro-Russian protests, and a lot of these people have come from other parts of the region, they're not actually living in Chisinau, and apparently they've been bussed in or brought in from these private groups, as well as the pro-Russian party in the area, and most of these protests have actually been pro-Russian, and they're angry at the government, obviously over economic issues, and many of these Many of these Moldovan protesters are basically saying, we want Russia to come. And they claim that Russia would make the country better. Now, I, now I'll get into later why I don't think this is authentic. But anyways, that's what's happening. And from my understanding, the economy has been brutal. This has led to massive anger and desperation, especially in more rural areas. I was reading that energy bills now consume like 70% of household income. And there were some interview or some protesters interviewed uh, by the BBC who said, in quotes here, when we elected this government, they promised to raise salaries and pensions. But so far, we haven't seen a penny. And all these protesters are angry and they all have stories of struggle, basically. And from my understanding, the president, who is President Sandu, has tried their best to diversify the energy situation since the invasion of Ukraine. But it's been tough as basically, you know, Russia's cut off the majority of fuel to the country. And so obviously energy prices are going to suffer. This is one of those situations where Russia's made the economic situation worse. And it's actually been an effective weapon at turning the people against Sandu's government, which is definitely more pro-West, pro-Ukraine. And I'm not sure if like Russia is directly trying to use this as a tactic to change public opinion, but it does seem to be working from what I'm seeing. And the BBC notes that last year Moscow cut its supply to Moldova by half, and this put pressure on the government. And this is not really good because Moldova has really struggled at times to hold together these Romanian and Russian-speaking parts of the country. And so now there's just more tensions brewing. And never a good sign when you also have this invasion happening in one of their neighboring countries of Ukraine, right? And now the interesting thing is that some think these protests are deliberate or being brought in for political reasons. The BBC writes here in quotes, Sunday's protests organized by Moldova's pro-Russian SOAR party are being closely watched by governments across Europe and beyond. Most, most protesters traveled to the capital city of Kishanu by bus with their costs reportedly covered by the SOAR party itself. So to me, one has to wonder if these are actually organic protests or if they're maybe being fueled by these Russian parties to give Russia some incentive to intervene. Now, I'm, I, I am not at all denying that people are angry about what's happening in the country and about the economy and costs of fuel and everything. But it, that's a whole different situation than, you know, trying to now call for Russia. And I'm just theorizing now, but if Putin thinks that people in Moldova need to be rescued from the government, maybe he would support some action there. So I don't know if maybe that's the strategy of some of these Moldovan pro-Russian parties 
but it would definitely check out. And we also have to remember that right before these protests started, there were fears of some sort of coup or military intervention. The BBC writes also in that same article, days before the gathering took place, President Maya Sandu warned that Russia was plotting to send military-trained saboteurs into the country, disguised as civilians, to basically topple her pro-Western government. During a briefing last week, President Sandu said, in quotes, Russia had already attempted to destabilize the situation via the energy crisis, which she said was expected to cause major discontent among the population and lead to violent protests, which we're starting to see. The plan now, she said, involved diversionists with military training who would undertake violent action, carry out attacks on buildings of state institutions, or even take hostages. And the BBC also notes here in quotes, 57 people from nations friendly to Russia, including a group of Serbian football fans and several boxers from Montenegro, were denied entry into Moldova in the past few days after checks by security services. So I don't think anyone's completely sure what is exactly happening. But it's, there's something brewing, I guess would be the best way to put it. And at least the government's aware. But there are some strange goings-ons occurring at this time. And I did read another article which interviewed Councillor Yuri Berenci, who, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but that is the Moldovan leader of this pro-Russian SOAR party that I mentioned earlier. They're the ones bringing in these protesters into the capital of Kishanu. And... This individual has said that they think Moldova would actually be better with Russia leading it, and that if Russia wanted to take Moldova, they could do it in half a day. Now, we did hear this similar thing about a year ago with Ukraine, so I don't know if I believe that yet, but that's what they're saying. And this whole thing shows to me that even if an invasion or some coup doesn't happen, there is a breakdown in Moldovan society around these different ethnic groups and what they want, right? Sounds like the cities want to lean to the West, and be independent from Russia. They want Russia to stay the hell out. But then you have these other regions like in Transnistria, which um, see Russia as the better option. And as, and as the economy gets worse, maybe the calls for that will become bigger. And I think this will make things much worse for the government, right? And the last thing I will say is that I think this shows me how important it is that we make sure Ukraine stops Russia. I am really sick of kind of these either far-right or sometimes leftist populists who kind of do a horseshoe and pretty much say the same thing. The people who say we need to do some sort of agreement or compromise or land swap, whatever. I, I hear everyone from like the Joe Rogans to some on the left to the, you know, I don't know, the J.D. Vances calling for this type of stuff. And it just doesn't make sense to me because they just don't seem to understand what Putin wants here. And it was Ann Applebaum who said it best, I think it was in an article and then also in an interview I listened to, where she said that if we found some compromise, Putin would likely, you know, go away for a little bit, build up his resources and weapons again and military, and then he would just come back. Like, it's, it, this appeasement strategy is not going to be effective here. And we have to remember that it, he doesn't just want parts of Ukraine anymore. He clearly wants to get rid of Kiev, right? Like, if he wanted just the Donbass region or... Donetsk or whatever, he would not also be still focusing these attacks on getting to Kiev or the bombardment of these more western parts of Ukraine. He wants he wants a Ukraine that is part of Russia, right? And I don't, I just don't know how people still think like a compromise would really work at this point. And um, now, as we know, Biden was in Kiev yesterday, right? But now he's actually in Poland and Warsaw, meeting with Moldova's president Sandu, who I talked about earlier. 
And the White House has a statement that reads here, President Biden met today with Moldovan President Maya Sandu in Warsaw. President Biden reaffirmed strong U.S. support for Moldova's sovereignty and territorial integrity. He highlighted ongoing U.S. assistance to help Moldova strengthen its political and economic resilience, including its democratic, uh, democratic sorry, reform agenda and energy security, and to address the effects of Russia's war against Ukraine. So I think it's good that, you know, Anthony Blinken was talking about this, but I think it's also good that the U.S. is aware of what could happen there, and we are showing our support for them as well. So... It'll be interesting to see this. We need to just continue being aware that I don't think Russia would stop with Ukraine. So not good stuff, but hopefully the Moldovans can keep this together and make sure no changes of power happen. We don't want a pro-Russian president in Moldova right now. So anyways, we're going to have to watch that. Moving on, though, I do want to just briefly mention Biden going to Kiev over, what, the holiday weekend. You know, it's kind of a good look, I have to say, President's Day, and the president is in a war zone. I mean, everything else aside, the optics are pretty good for Biden on that one. I, I do believe that. But anyways, I guess what had happened is they'd been planning this, they'd been coordinating this trip for a long time where Biden and some other envoys would go with him to Kiev. But it was a last minute decision that they were going to go over the weekend. Obviously, you don't want to really alert everyone far in advance because... Like I said earlier, you fly into Poland and have to take like a pretty long train to Kiev. And, you know, if someone knows your whereabouts, the way the situation is right now might not be the best for you. So anyways, they they made it there. And I, I think it's a, it was a pretty big deal, even if it's just a symbol. Because I think what it shows the world when he went to Kiev is that there's really no going back. You know, as we talk about Trump wanting to be a dove and ending the conflict and DeSantis, you know, saying, why are we worried about that border when our own borders porous and, you know, all these different, all these different kind of America first talking points or Kevin McCarthy wanting to audit uh, the spending and see where all the money's going. I think this was a big message. It's, it sends a, mis a message to Moscow, first off, and to European leaders in general, and I think to even Republicans back home who you know, see him as weak and want us to leave Ukraine, want us to not care. I think, I think it's interesting. And this happened, what, uh, almost right on the anniversary of the invasion. And this is also on the eve, he arrives there, of Putin delivering his major speech, right, his State of the Nation speech. And yeah, here we have Biden arriving in Kiev. And I think the optics are good. And it shows that we are full-heartedly behind them right now, at least. I don't know after 2024 if, you know, Trump or someone's president. Obviously, it's all out the door. But I think this was a good, good thing for the world. Uh, it's a brutal war. And even though it's been so tragic so far, Kiev is a free city and Biden went there. And I think Jake Sullivan put it best during a, a press conference from Kiev. He said in quotes, the visit today was an effort to show and not just tell that we will continue to stand strong. And <clears throat> one thing I'll note before we move on to is that apparently the White House and, and Washington, D.C. actually let the Russians know we were coming, which I thought was kind of a bold move, but also kind of shows how much we fear them right now, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But anyways, I'm glad that Biden made it out of Kiev safe. He is now in Warsaw, Poland. 
And I, I applaud him for doing this. It's common, obviously, for the president to go to a war zone or go to a place where our troops are. But this one is a little bit different because, you know, you had Bush, Obama, Trump go to Afghanistan, Iraq and visit our troops. But usually it was in a military base or some sort of like American protected location. Right. And in this case, he there's a picture of him and Zelensky walking along the streets. So risky, maybe. Um, obviously, shit could hit the fan if something happened to him. But so far, so good. And I'm glad that he is showing his strength and showing Ukraine that we are not going anywhere. So anyways, as things are heating up in Moldova, and Biden is in central to Eastern Europe, Putin, I guess it was last night, gave his state of the nation speech. And as he gave this speech, which was kind of similar to all of his other ones, but it's a one, it's one that a lot of Western media and Western officials watch to kind of see what maybe Putin wants to do next. And there was nothing really too new in his rhetoric, though he did himself withdraw Russia from the New START nuclear treaty, which is with the U.S., and he did this on Tuesday. So sorry, it was not yesterday, it was today he did the speech. But he did this, pulled, pulled Russia officially out of the New START nuclear treaty, and then he threatened to resume nuclear testing weapons. So not, not great news, but I, I should note that during the pandemic, I think it was back in 2020 or 2021, we actually had already kind of suspended this. So it's nothing that notable, but also it's not a good sign when one of the last remaining kind of checks on the United States and Russia and nuclear weapons is being ended. So one other thing I'll say is that he also called the invasion of Ukraine a war and an invasion for once. Usually he's called this like a special military operation or a police operation, but he's now just admitting it. <laughs> so I don't know what that means for what the dynamics are going to be like on the ground, but it is interesting to hear him actually say that. And while this is all happening, the State Department has put out some rather troubling statements about China. And what I mean here is that it looks like China is also changing its rhetoric towards uh, us, first off, and Ukraine. Obviously, this comes after... We've had the spy balloon and then the other UFOs that probably were also related to the spy balloon program. And now China is accusing us of, in quotes, fanning the flames in Ukraine. And, it, and the country has also claimed that the United States is profiting from the war and is causing more destruction than anyone else. Basically, they're saying that we want this war to keep going for profits. Ironically, this is something you actually hear from that horseshoe effect of the left and the right in the United States, the anti-war people, they say Washington just wants this to go on, military-industrial complex, they just splat out all these different conspiracies about it. And China China kind of knows that will work, I think, because China hears what's going on with us, and they, like Russia, they can kind of then hold a mirror up to us and see what they can do internally. But anyway, they're, yeah, they're accusing us of fanning the flames in Ukraine. Still not putting much blame on Putin, who, if you want to talk about someone who's actually made this bad, it was, you know, invading a sovereign country. But anyways, according to the, uh, the AP, China has accused the U.S. of this after, in quotes, there was an interview that aired Sunday in which the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, said that American intelligence suggests that China is considering, considering providing arms and ammunition to Russia, an involvement in the Kremlin's war effort that would be a very serious problem. And... <clears throat> This is a big step because prior to what's happening now in these new worries, China has been relatively silent about Russia's role in Ukraine. I know there's been some videos I've seen 
and there's been some reports of like Chinese officials mentioning that like Russia shouldn't be doing this or it's getting bad. But China's mainly put out vague statements about finding a peaceful solution, concessions, all that. And so I wonder if China is willing to actually get involved or change their rhetoric now that these reports are coming out and now that they're kind of in a war of words with the United States. A lot of moving pieces here. And the Wall Street Journal has a good piece on this issue. And it just kind of talks about how things are escalating quickly, but also how these new events are kind of a threat to the international U.S.-led world order that we have now, whether you like that or not. I don't think a Chinese-Russian world order would be better. But the article writes here in quotes, China, whose top diplomat Wang Yi excoriated the U.S. at a security conference in Germany before arriving Tuesday in Moscow to see Russian officials and, people familiar with the material said, likely propose a summit between Mr. Putin and China's Xi Jinping, which is not good. The article then goes on, the developments between the two nations signal greater stress for the international system as Washington and its allies contend with a rising China, which has provided an important economic lifeline to Moscow. And I mean, I'll just go back and say that personally, I thought from the beginning of this invasion that China would inevitably be drawn in this in some way, one way or another. First off, China and Russia both want to weaken the United States' role in the world and both have similar views of the social contracts between the government and the people, or maybe the lack of a social contract between the government and the people. Both probably didn't really win the Cold War era, right? Both were allies during the Cold War, though this time, obviously, China would be the bigger player instead of Russia. But also, China and Russia, you know, are making similar developments in the nuclear weapons department. China's been quiet about its growing arsenals, which is definitely troubling by itself. And as I mentioned earlier, Russia has officially pulled out of the New START Treaty. And I guess even if China does not openly get involved in helping the Russians in Ukraine... The two are getting closer, and they both would not, let's just say, be too sad about a destabilized West. And we have to remember that the current post-war order, post-World War II order, or even post-fall of the Soviet Union order, has brought a lot of success to capitalism, democracies, and a lot of Western superpowers, along with definitely some Asian ones as well. But it's also kind of led to struggles in places like Russia and China, and I bet if you asked a lot of people like Putin... I know if you ask a lot of people like Putin, they would not be too thrilled about what happened. So I, I don't think either country is really celebrating the current world order, system, whatever you want to call it, and would love to upend it. Both of them prefer totalitarianism over democracy and kind of a managed form of capitalism over what we see in a lot of Western Europe. So the last thing I will add is that I think China is less willing to actually help Russia and like, I don't, I guess what I mean is I don't see China sending, you know, boots on the ground anytime soon. But that being said, I think China wants to be the one that brokers a peace deal in this situation and a peace deal that is probably more welcoming to Russia, a peace deal that would be bad for Ukraine, but they want a deal. They want to be seen as kind of the savior, the country that brings peace, not war, kind of like kind of similar to what Trump says he wants to do, calling himself a dove. And I tell people all the time, a very flawed peace deal would not make you a dove because it would probably mean more people would die in Ukraine. But anyways, this would probably mean, if China were to do it, land successions, 
concession, sorry, uh, a cease fire, those type of things. And all of which I think would be bad. For example, a ceasefire would just give Putin time, right? He could maybe rest his troops, replenish supplies, refocus, and that, that's, not, that's not really a peace deal, but I think China just wants to end this conflict. Now, ultimately, I do think we should be worried about some kind of Chinese-Iranian-Russian alliance, for sure, because they're all very bad actors, in my opinion. But at the same time... I think China's in a tough place right now, and the Wall Street Journal article from earlier, I think, mentions it best. It says here in quotes, the greater its support for Russia's war, the more China will tarnish its relationship with Europe. And, you know, China had this whole Belt and Road Initiative and all these debt traps, obviously, that it was, that it was putting developing countries into, but China did have a big stake in trying to grow outside of Asia. And obviously, the war in Ukraine has kind of put some issues towards that, I guess you could say. So... Not good news by any means, but I still, maybe I'm naive, but I still like to think that China is smarter than really getting directly involved in this disaster. Because part of me feels like behind closed doors, the Chinese are just kind of shaking their heads about what Russia's doing. But I could be wrong there for sure. So moving on, I want to talk about George Santos and then briefly Marjorie Taylor Greene. But basically last night I was on the couch watching TV. I was going through YouTube. And I came across this just amazing, insane interview between uh, Piers Morgan and George Santos. And Piers Morgan has some new interview show after he was axed on Good Morning Britain. And he just interviews people. I've, I watched some of his Andrew Tate one. He's, he just brings on controversial people. And I will say, he actually is pretty good at pushing them. It's not some friendly interview. I know a lot of Americans aren't big Piers Morgan's fans. But like he had Carrie Lake on and he was pretty harsh to her. And in this case, he had, he had George Santos on for almost an hour. I think it was about 55, 58 minutes. And I think Piers did a pretty good job in this interview of A, letting Santos speak, and B, just kind of also pushing back on his lies and kind of putting him into these traps where he just looked like an absurd idiot. He does... Basically, the way he does this is that it makes... It basically highlights how unreliable of a narrator George Santos is and how he just cannot be trusted. I thought it was interesting because sometimes Santos would admit to some of his lies, but but he would like play the victim or it was someone else's fault, right? And then someone else like in society made him do it. However, then also in other lies, he would double down and would say, even though, even though there's no evidence or this has been proven wrong, I still stand by it, like his mom dying in 9-11 and all that stuff. And... It was just interesting to see him just sometimes admit his lies and sometimes not because it just shows how basically just how weird of a dude he is and how much of a liar he is. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to play some clips that I found interesting out of the interview. I time stamped them and recorded them back later. And then I want to just react to some of them. So one thing I will add to before I start these clips is that I really felt gaslighted like completely. He he just made you unable to to discern the truth and really know what he was actually meaning. So it, it was interesting, and um, I want to start by playing the early segment of the interview with Pierce, because Pierce starts by saying that even in Britain, Santos is known as a liar. Then they get into an interesting series of talking about his lies surrounding his you know, early education, and then his university education. And you will notice that Santos doubles down on half of the lies and then admits he lied about what he went or where he went to college. 
it just really illustrates the mind of this guy. So I'll, I'll play those first clips here. Honest now. Of course, because I don't say there's any upside in continuing to fuel the media narrative that you're this terrible liar, right? So, you know, I'm very, I, I, listen, I don't have a horse in the race. I'm not an American citizen. <laughs> you're not my congressman. You don't serve me. It's not my hard-earned cash going on supporting you. So in that sense, I'm slightly detached from this. All I can say is that in the UK, we're aware of you because there's been this constant running theme now for months on end that you tell a lot of whoppers, as we would call it, in the UK. And so I think it's a good, it's a good chance, Congressman, to just try and work out where the truth lies. Because why not? Um, challenge to see what, they're, what name they're looking under. If you look at my entire history of education, it was not under the name George Santos. So I just, what, what name did you attend that school? Uh, a, a variation. It was either George DeVolder or Anthony DeVolder. I wouldn't know. I was a minor. I don't know which but way. CNN, I believe, checked all the variants of the names that you've used, and there was no record the school could find of you ever attending. I was there for six months of ninth grade. In what year would that have been? Uh, 2004. So for six months, you were indisputably at the Horace yeah. Mann School in the and then moved into And then moved into the public system. And then in 2006, I attained a GED due to just circumstances. Why, why would the school not be able to find a record of I don't know. Uh, what I don't what know. name should they be looking for? I would say George DeVolder. That's how, I, that's how it's on my uh, GED certificate. Well, you got on the job that you graduated with a degree in economics and finance from Baruch College in 2000. I'll say I'll save you the, the I did not attain a college education. That was that was that regrettably so is one of my biggest uh, uh, regrets in life. So that that was a lie. Absolutely. And I admitted to it and I've I've made peace with the fact that I made a bad choice in making that decision. It wasn't easy. What was the simple explanation for why you made, why would you lie about something like that? Expectation on society, the pressure, couldn't afford it. Uh, decided I wanted to run for office, although I had built a very credible business career. And I just didn't have that part of my biography that I could not. So first off, I mean, I think it's interesting how in that last part where he's talking about how he did lie about going to Baruch College, he, he's like, yeah, I came to peace with that decision. And it was hard, but I came to peace with it. And then, oh, society made me do it, blah, 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 blah. It's like, I mean, dude, okay, I'm glad you came to peace with it, but you wouldn't have had to come to peace with it if you didn't lie about it. I mean, and, and the other thing I'll say, too, about that is that this whole new kind of populist GOP is kind of anti-education. You know, they're always talking about how they don't like college official, pr professionals and elitists and all this stuff. So I find it kind of funny that he had to lie about going to college when a lot of the party these days is kind of uh, not really, like, they're kind of anti-academic. So that was interesting to me, and... I also liked in the earlier part is that Pierce notes that this uh, early education school has no record of him or any of his names attending it. Yet Santos is like, yeah, yeah, George de Boulder, that was definitely there. Like part of me wonders if he was in defense mode or if he believes his own lie. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I, I just find it, I, I guess I find it interesting that this guy really thinks he's the victim. So that is that is lovely to me. But moving on, I think this next clip is great. So following the back and forth on this education part of their discussion, Pierce directly calls out Santos for just being inconsistent with the truth. And I think it's a really astute way he says it that kind of sums up everything we see from here on. Big lies. 
and then you deny other big lies. And the problem people have is they don't know when you're lying and when you're telling them the truth. I'm not even sure now, because how can I be? Like I said. Because you've claimed on campaign bios you went to this school and this volleyball team and achieved this degree and big Wall Street, big hitter, and all these things turn out not to be true. So when you now look me in the eye and say, well, actually, no, I, you know, I'm, this is true, I don't know what to believe. No, I understand. And that, look, that's a position I put myself in, right? My credibility is what, what I'm going to have a, mm. a hard time and a long road to recover. Yeah. I. Oh, man. I'm so sorry, man. You have a long road ahead for all the lies. But I, but I think Pierce just does bring up a really good point there because how do you trust anything this guy says, right? Even if he now claims to be telling the truth or coming to terms with anything, he still seems like a liar to me. And moving on, I next want to play these two clips from later in the interview where they go into his drag days, his drag queen days, or at least the time where he once claims to have dressed like a drag queen but only did it once when he was Katara or whatever. And look, I'm not making fun of him for being a drag queen. I could care less, honestly. But I like these clips because I think they again show how even when he admits something, he's kind of inconsistent or lying about the truth. So let's play these two clips and then I'll have some thoughts afterwards. Same to pictures. Uh, oh, hold on. I go out. So, so if I was a drag queen, I was the poorest drag queen in the world because I had well, one outfit you, in one day. I'm not saying you the were the shortest lived career. I'm not saying you were a good drag queen. I'm just saying you clearly dressed up in drag once. Oh, sorry. Okay. That's like me saying Rudy Giuliani. I'm not, Giuliani a, I'm not a murderer. Up. I only kill one. No, person. I understand. I mean, but Rudy Giuliani. Once I dress up in drag. I once paid have somebody. we seen photograph. I mean, is is it likely? I mean, again, look, I don't care if you dress up in drag. <laughs> doesn't make any odds to me. Why no, do I don't care. And look, here, I, here's my question for you. A, it's unlikely you did that only once, if I may be so bold. You can, as to you, can that. Be, you can say that. It's just that only once have we got photographic evidence, right? Pierce, I think it's 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 just uh, to me, it's almost amusing that people are trying to fight me of being something that I'm not. That. Quite frankly, if I were to say, oh, yeah, I'm a drag queen, that would probably give me redemption points, which I'm, I'm not willing to take it. because I, I really appreciate how he's, you know, uh, worried that people are thinking he's something that he's not. Dude, the self-awareness here is lacking. The fact that he struggles to even admit it and then dances back and forth with the truth is just kind of telling me who he is. And when Piers mentions that it's hard to believe that he has only done it once. I can't help but think of this as kind of being a great metaphor for all of his actions, all of the actions and things Santos says and does. If he's lying about one thing, he's probably lying about all of it, right? He's consistently inconsistent with the truth. And usually these type of liars, it's not just one lie. It's kind of like a mountain of lies. And I guess in a sense, his consistently inconsistent relationship with the truth, I think in a sense, it really highlights how Santos is really the perfect creation of our society and its woes and excess and post-truth culture. I, I really do. Now, the next clip I want to get into is a little bit more angering from the interview, and I think Piers does a good job in it. And this is where Piers really presses Santos on claiming to be Jewish or Jew-ish. And I'll play this part. We'll talk about it afterwards. I will be that same story because you, I, I'm you, working on that right now. Okay, but you would understand that if that wasn't true, 
if your grandparents hadn't survived the Holocaust. That would be a pretty awful thing to that play with. That would be a Why would I play with that? Well, that's, right. That's, well, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most staunch pro-Israel, most staunch pro-Judaism people in Congress today. Well, so much so you claim to be Jewish, but you're not Jewish. I, I never claim to be Jewish. I've always made, I've always made a party favor joke. You claim to be Jewish, half Jewish, a proud American Jew, a Latino Jew, and a non-observant Jew. They're all direct quotes from you. So, but you're not. You're Pierce, a Catholic. Like I've, me. I've, I'm a Catholic. Pierce, I've always made this as a party favor joke, and it's I've done it on stages across What's the country. What's funny about cl falsely no, claiming you're Jewish? No, 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 not falsely claiming I'm Jewish. I'd always say, I'm, I was raised Catholic, but I come from a Jewish family, so that makes me Jew-ish. But again... It's always been a party favor. Everybody's always laughed, I'm and sure now that do. everybody's canceling me, sure everybody's pounding down for a pound well, of flesh. You're, because you're not Jewish. Well, I, I never said I was. I've you always, did. I, you I've, I've, said you were. And I would always say, but my grandparents are Jewish on my mother's side, so I'm Jew-ish. Now, uh, I actually don't have the remainder of that clip, but then Piers is like, well, how do you think the Jewish community feels about you pretty much appropriating them? And I, I just really like that interaction because he's like, I never said I was Jewish. And then Piers pulls up just multiple examples. He's like, yes, yes, you, you have said that. His direct quotes and all that stuff. And it's, oh, God. And, I mean, honestly, being serious for a moment, I think this is just blatant anti-Semitism or even, like, cultural appropriation. And, you know, I usually don't talk about cultural appropriation on this show, but... From everything I've read and from all the coverage I've seen, I don't think there's any evidence that he, that he's Jewish, right? And I don't know. He seems to be doing it just so he can say he is and appeal to a constituency. I don't even know, honestly. And he's making a mockery out of the Jewish people. Like, that, that's the problem is here, here is he's just making a joke out of the whole thing. And the fact that he thinks it was funny to call himself Jewish is just insane and depressing. You know, I can't believe he called this a party favor or a party trick. Oh, yeah, I like to pretend that I'm Jewish. You know, his party trick is offensive, in my opinion. And it's just really low to the Jewish people who have gone through so many issues. You know what I mean? And I know he says people thought it was funny, but I think if he went to uh, a large Jewish uh, community or went to a synagogue and said all of this, I don't know if they would be too thrilled or if, if they would be as amused as he claims people are. So, yeah, a few more clips here, though. Later in the interview, they got into a discussion, or I guess you could say an interview that George Santos gave to a Brazilian outlet where he claimed there was an assassination attempt on him and that he was also attacked in New York City. And Santos says he, it was a death threat. It was never an assassination attempt. And he blames the translators for making it sound like he said what he did. And let's listen, and then, yeah, we'll talk. Assassination attempt, when was that? It wasn't an assassination attempt. It was a death threat. This is poorly translated Portuguese to English language. It was a death threat. It was a death threat. It was several death Nobody threats. Nobody tried to kill you. No, and I've never claimed somebody tried to kill me. These were several, uh, we had a several series of death threats following. So this Brazilian podcast has you saying already suffered an assassination attempt. That's, well, that's been badly translated. This is poor translation. So if we go back and we listen to the original. Please do. I, 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 it I, wouldn't have you saying you'd I, already suffered an assassination I, I, attempt. I encourage you. Yeah? Yeah. So it wouldn't have you saying those words? It has me clearly saying that I suffered an, uh, um, death threats throughout the process of running for office, something along those lines, but no assassination. Attempt. Okay, look, here's the thing. Here, here's here's the reality. Thing, Congress, here's the thing. You may as well just be completely honest now. And, well, that's what I'm being. I'm throw, telling you, I'm not yeah, going to rehash it. Throw yourself it. to the public, to their mercy, to say, I've made up all this stuff about myself, right? I'm incredibly sorry, and I fall on the sword of, of your forgiveness. 
because you're now facing eight different investigations. Who knows where they're all going to lead? There's all these questions about your financing, your campaign expenses. All of it on the face of it looks dodgy, but your biggest problem is going to be persuading people of what the truthful answers are. And I think Piers, again, hits it perfectly there. And the thing with this clip is that, hey, Santos may be 100% correct. You know, he also earlier talks about how he was mugged on the streets of New York. Not that surprising. Maybe he was mistranslated in this assassination attempt thing. But the, but the big problem here is that we don't know what to believe because he's such a damn liar. And this is all backfiring on the guy. I know he has no shame and he acts like he's fine and he's going to be vindicated. and He's just trying to help his constituents. But because he's gaslit us the whole time, we have no way of knowing. And the bigger issue is that it's going to make him ineffective in Congress because other lawmakers are not going to want to work with him or want to co-sponsor anything with him because they don't know. They don't know if they can believe him. And <clears throat> ultimately, I want to play this last clip before we move on to Marjorie Taylor Greene, where it seems like he's actually being honest, um, and it's about being gay. And I think Piers puts him into a corner here because he does a great job of noting how Santos can be honest, but hasn't been in other parts of his life. It's interesting to hear. Against me. Matter of fact, it's the Democrats who often come after me for being a gay Republican, and they use that to, to criticize me. It seems to me, I mean, you've been very honest there about your private life. You know, and I don't want to rake over it all. I'm not going to do any, any further. But you have been, it seems to me, very honest. And I would applaud you for that. But it begs the question, why not be as honest about everything else in your life? You've got a lot of people calling you the world's worst liar and political history. That's fine. Wanting to trash you. I beg differ because Joe Biden's in the White House, but that's just me. <laughs> no, I've seen you tweet that. I've seen you tweet that's that. That's just me. You know, Mitt Romney, one of the senior Republican senators, came up to you at the State of the Union and said you shouldn't be glad-handing people down the front. You should be out the back hiding in shame. And he also said that you should stand down. It wouldn't be the first time somebody told me to shut up and go to the back of the room, Pearson. It's not going to be the last. Is it right, though, Congressman, that you should be able to have told so many lies and remain in Congress? Or do you think the American public are entitled to somebody who is more truthful sitting in one of the great seats of power in the country? I think that the Americans who voted for me will get to judge me in two years. And they make that ultimate decision, not the talking heads, not politicians, not party leaders. Do you think you want to run? And he, he asked him, <clears throat> excuse me, he asked him, okay, do you, want, do you want to run again and all that? Anyways, I, I find it funny that he equates his lies to Biden's lies. I mean, I think I was telling my dad. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was my dad. I was telling him, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, all politicians lie for sure. No doubt about it. But like the George Santos lies are just such a different form of a lie. It's like lying about your, your almost existence and who you are as a person to the like nth degree. It's such a, different form of lying. I will also just add that I think it's kind of interesting that he blames Democrats and then attacks them for not supporting him as an anti, or, or sorry, as a gay Republican. Um, dude, this is not why they oppose you. It's the lies, the anti-Semitism, the extreme rhetoric, stealing money from veterans, all the cam campaign finance stuff, stealing money from veterans, from the Amish, it's being a supporter of the big lie on January 6th. I mean, the dude even stole his room, his college, or his roommates, not college, uh, his roommates, uh, like, 
scarf or something? Like, come on. It's, it's not the gay Republican thing, why everyone's attacking you, but it's just the victimhood and the shamelessness really come out strong in this interview, and that's just why I wanted to share it. And I guess I just, my final thoughts on this are, are that this is a guy who has, who has used like every vague political gray area in our society to just completely grift us. And I don't think this guy would exist without the Trump era and all the like debates over misinformation and stuff. But I also think he exists because we just do live in a post-truth world where you can almost create yourself and run, you know? And <clears throat> I found it interesting when he turned to how he... I, I didn't record this part. I wish I did. But there's a part where he talks about how he just wants to help the people of his district. He's focused on policy solutions. He wants to deliver. And I just found this wild because he's really done nothing. He is just posing with NRA tags on his jacket and being ridiculed by people on both sides. And he's the subject of eight investigations. Maybe he wants to get things done, but no one trusts him. And his constituents also don't. So I think he will just be a useless congressman and should resign because taxpayers are paying for this guy to basically be a useless piece in the political machine. And the irony here, too, is that I think this guy just was kind of a failure in a lot of ways, and so he figured he would run for Congress. And that tells me a lot of issues about our society where you're kind of a grifter and a failure, so you decide maybe I'll run for Congress. I think we should really look in the mirror deeply about that. He also talks about how he exposes a bigger issue with the cultural and political rot in Congress. And he's probably right, but I think it was Piers himself who points out that other members are vetted at least a bit, and Santos is much more of a liar. Like I said, other politicians lie, and some of the lies are more dangerous, like the lies to get us into Iraq, for example, after 9-11. Those are bad lies. But Santos is just, a, like I said, a very different type of liar. And I think for this reason, though, Santos just wouldn't exist without a morally bankrupt GOP. But he's just such a huge stretch, even compared to the others. And sticking to another crazy congressperson, before we're out of here... I just want to end with a few thoughts on America's favorite congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And she recently put out some interesting thoughts, to say the least, and it's on the concept of national divorce. And I will just start by saying that I've heard this term kind of on right-wing circles for a long time. So it's nothing new. But, for example, like Michael Malice, kind of an anarcho-libertarian, he is someone I know has talked about a national divorce. It's a pretty popular concept until you think about it. And But anyways, here's what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. She said, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and by blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. And... I mean, first off, this woman's despicable, so I'm going to not waste my time getting into that. But I think her thoughts on having a national divorce are not just illogical and impractical, but they're also just sad, troubling, and I guess you could even say somewhat authoritarian and even maybe fascist. First off, though, I don't think that many average Americans and most Republicans actually think like this. Like, like she's, I think it was Crystal Ball on Breaking Points who had a really good point where she's like, her own state would be a problem for a national divorce or a breakup between the red and the blue, the left and the right. Georgia is a pretty split state. 
And you have to imagine that there's people that live on the same street and get along with each other. And maybe some of them voted for Raphael Warnock and some voted for Herschel Walker. Most Americans aren't this divided. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene spends way too much time in these far-right circle jerks online. And it's very antithetical to what it means to be American. America's always been kind of about diversity of opinion and trying to get along with one another. And she is basically saying that if she can't force all of America to believe what she thinks or think like she does, then we might as well just give up and split up and abandon. And it, it was the governor of Utah who, he said something to the effect of, we don't need a national divorce, we need some therapy or couples counseling, something like that. And I think that's true, is we need to work through these issues. But she's basically saying, nah, I don't want to care about the other side. I don't really want to put in any effort here. And that's just not what this country's about. And I, ironically, you know, she's one of the flag-waving patriots, as she calls herself. But in reality, her view of what America should be is really anti-patriotic. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it. It's very anti-patriotic. And I, I just wonder <laughs> how Kevin McCarthy feels now that he's, you know, let her stick around for so long. And she is just saying crazy, crazy shit still. So... I don't really know how many people actually think like this, but she is a key figure on the right now. And this used to be a basically a topic that was, you know, in far right 4chan and 8chan boards, and you see it on Reddit sometimes. And now one of the most influential congresswomen on the right is talking about this. And so it's not good. It's really not good at all. And again, if they had to just not let her stick around a while ago, Maybe she wouldn't be as influential now, but I highly doubt Kevin McCarthy's going to say anything. And uh, yeah, just uh, there's a lot of crazies out there, I guess. So anyways, longer episode today, but uh, I want to thank you for listening. I'm watching it snow outside. I think it's going to be a pretty cold week. And enjoy the rest of your Tuesday, and I'll be back. Again, uh, my war with Apple Podcasts here. Uh, they are putting the podcast out there, but it comes out about two or three hours, sometimes four to five, sometimes a day later than when I record it and put it out. Like it's usually available on Spotify within about 15 minutes. It's been taking Apple Podcasts sometimes a day for it to even show up in the feed. And when you do a kind of current events podcast, it's not great when, you're, when your material comes out late. So it's new. I don't know what's changed, but hopefully it'll be fixed. But I am on Apple Podcasts, but I, if you have like Spotify or something else, I would maybe recommend going there first. So anyways, take care.